How do you know that Jesus loves you? We're going to find another reason this morning besides that. Thank you, George. I was hoping that would be the answer. But we also know that Jesus loves us because of what he did coming to die on that cross for our sins. We're back this week and last in the book or the Gospel of John. A few years ago... A survey revealed that the most popular religious song in America, this is 25, 30 years ago, was an old rugged cross. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. Why? Because it strikes a responsive chord in each of us and because it is central to what we believe. In 1 Corinthians 1.18 we read that the message of the cross is the power of God unto salvation. And the message of the gospel is the cross. And Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Now this week, we're going to be looking at a hill far away, or actually, what led up to a hill far away. And then two weeks from now, the significance of that cross on a hill far away. But in between, next week, a representative from Jews for Jesus is going to be here and going to be doing a demonstration of the Seder meal. If you've never experienced that, you're in for an an incredible experience, an incredible treat. And the roots of this meal go clear back to the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus, Passover. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we open your word this morning to the Gospel of John, as we look again at uh, Jesus' expression of his love for us, we know that Jesus loves us. The Bible tells us so. And there it tells us of one who came set aside the splendor of his majesty and glory in heaven, condescended and emptied himself that he might become a man. And as fully God and fully man, he lived, revealed to us the Father, and then died in our place and in our stead for our sins. May we, Father, never, never Uh, lose sight of the significance of this, and may it impact our lives now, not just eternally. Be our teacher this morning, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. In chapter 18, at verse 11 of the Gospel of John, a mob, along with a lot of soldiers, and, of course, Judas Iscariot, came to arrest Jesus. And true to form, Peter single-handedly was going to defend Jesus, pulled out his sword and struck off the ear of Malchus, the priest's servant. Jesus stooped down, picked up the ear, put it back in place, healed it, and said, Peter, cool your jets. Put your sword away. 
In chapter 12, verse 27, we read Jesus' words, For this purpose I came into the world. There's a word in Scripture that's like waving a red flag many times to many Christians. It's the word predestination. And I think many times we, we make assumptions as to what that word means. In Scripture, the word is used of something that God has determined in eternity past that will come to pass. There is an outcome that will happen. The word predestination is not always causative. For example, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ was directly caused by God. The crucifixion of Jesus was not caused by God directly. The Jewish people in their animosity to Jesus determined to see him crucified. And the Romans are the ones that crucified him. God didn't cause that, though he predestined that for this reason I came into the world. God predetermined that this would happen. But he didn't cause it directly. From Gethsemane, where this took place, Jesus was rushed to the first of three religious trials. In verse 13 of John 18, we read, And they led him away to Annas first. Annas was, if you're familiar with the, the movie Godfather, I never saw it, but I've read enough that I know that the, the mafia has a godfather. The guy that's the big cheese behind everything. Nothing happens if it doesn't clear through him. That was Annas. He was a very corrupt religious figure. There's very little religious about him. When the, when the children of Israel would come to the three high holy days in Israel to make sacrifice, they would bring their money to buy an animal at, at the Jerusalem, and they called it Annas's bazaar, because there, with inflated prices, he was gouging the people and uh, feathering his own nest. But he was in control, he was in charge. Now, he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the chief priest at this time. But nothing happened that didn't first go through him. Now, these were more like hearings or appearances than they were trials. There was a, a brief time with Annas and then to Caiaphas, and then it was off to the Sanhedrin, the official Jewish legal body. And it's not recorded in John. So we have to return to turn over to Luke chapter 22 to, to uh, get that picture. Luke chapter 22, verse 66. Luke 22, verse 66. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And they said to him, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You rightly say that I am. 
Right there, Jesus could have uh, waffled. He could have gotten off the hook, but he fell right into their trap. No, they fell into his. The charge here is blaspheming, and the verdict is guilty. And reading on in chapter 23, verse 1 of Luke, Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he will himself will be a king of the Jews. Now that's what they said, and we're going to see that again over in John. But their problem was not that Jesus uh, said that he was going to be a king, but that he said that he was God, blasphemy. And if Jesus were claiming to be God and he weren't, then it would be blasphemy. But it was truth. He is God, always will be God, and uh, it was not blasphemy, therefore. Now, under Roman occupation, the Jewish people were not allowed to exercise capital punishment. That is why they took him to the Roman governor, Pilate. And so after these three so-called religious trials, they go to the civil authorities before Pilate, and, of course, Rome. Now, in a Roman court of law, there were four required steps. First, the accusation, then the interrogation, then the defense, and then the verdict. Now, in verse 29 of John 18, Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring, do you bring against this man? That's the, the um, accusation. Then the interrogation in verse 33, Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? That's what they had said was the problem, which wasn't really the problem, but that's what they said. And then the defense in verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And the verdict, verse 36, 38, Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him. The only thing Pilate found Jesus guilty of was his claim to be the king of a spiritual kingdom, and this would be no threat to Caesar. Now between verse 38, where he said, I find no fault in him, and then in verse 39, there is a, a gap. And Pilate shuffles Jesus off to Herod Antipas, governor of Galilee. And that again is back in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, verse 5. <clears throat> and they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. 
Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, saying, arraying him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity one with the other. <clears throat> now, back to John 18, we see Jesus then again before Pilate. This is the sixth and final trial which led to Jesus' crucifixion. And in chapter 18, verse 39, Pilate is speaking. He says, You have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the one who says he's king of the Jews? Do you want me to release your king? It was scorn and sarcasm uh, on the part of Pilate. And I want to read some background that really helps to bring some understanding to what's really going on here. Pilate, first of all, hated the Jews and would do anything to thwart them and get his pound of flesh. At the same time, Pilate was skating on thin ice with Rome and he couldn't afford more embarrassment by means of turmoil in his province. This little profile of Pilate. He was an anti-Semitic, Spanish-born Gentile. He had been appointed governor of Judea by Caesar. But he had become a marked man because of his blundering and was under investigation by Rome. Simply put, when the Caesar was investigating your case, your days were usually numbered. Just months after Jesus was crucified, he was removed from Galilee, banished to Gaul, where a few months later he committed suicide. That's Pilate. Interesting background as we see the trial unfold. Pilate, Pilate tried numerous ways to stick it to the Jews while at the same time protecting his backside from Rome. That is important information as we, as we look at what happens here. Now, chapter 18, back to John 18, verse 40. Then they, the Jewish rabble, cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. It says Barabbas was a robber. Bar-Abbas. Son of Father, literal translation. The chief rabbis were called the fathers. Historical tradition bears out that Barabbas was not only a robber, but a rebel son of one of the chief rabbis or fathers. And he was despised by the religious hierarchy as one who stood against everything that they supposedly stood for. That's who they wanted released instead of Jesus. Pilate, true to his nature, tried to rub salt in the wound, but his intrigue 
backfired in his face. And he became rather uneasy, so he turned to appeasement. Chapter 19, verse 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, in mockery. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to him, Behold the man. (coughs) Dr. Homer A. Kent, Jr. said of scourging, Scourging was such a vicious punishment that Roman citizens were exempt from it. It consisted of a beating with a whip made of leather thongs embedded with metal tips. The prisoner was usually bound over a low pillar with his back exposed and and then whipped until his back was a bloody pulp. The first century historian Josephus wrote of a man whose bones were laid bare by scourging. Many people never survived a scourging. They died in the days following. Well, this is what Pilate did, and they were not appeased. And in verse 6, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate says, in the last part of verse 6, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. You take him! A big bluff. Probably hoping that they would back down. Because Pilate knew that the Jewish people were also on thin ice and they would not risk insurrection. He was wrong. He didn't, he miscalculated the depth of their hatred of Jesus. And in verse 7 we read, The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law he ought to die, because he made himself to be God. And when Pilate heard that, the real reason for their outrage, he knew that he was in trouble. They were willing to risk insurrection. Verse 8, Therefore, when Pilate heard that, that saying, he was the more afraid. And he went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Dr. Kent, again, says, Instead of the august expected of a Roman judge, we find Pilate passing back and forth from his chambers to, to the Jews outside no less than seven times. The Jews were willing to risk and then pulled out their ace in the hole 
little blackmail here. If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. You're protecting a treasonous person. They wanted Jesus dead because of the, his claim to be God. But the treason and the threat, and excuse me, the, the charge of treason, treason and the threat to implicate Pilate sealed Jesus' fate. They had Pilate in a corner and they knew it. And so did Pilate know it. But Pilate did not want to capitulate without adding a little more contempt. In verse 13, we read on, When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Again, in sarcasm. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Matthew chapter 27 tells us that at this point, Pilate washed his hands of guilt and said, I am innocent of the blood of this just man. He was putting responsibility for Jesus' death on them, even though he was no less guilty. Pilate had compromised his integrity over and over. And compromised integrity always comes back to haunt you. The verdict was in. The Jews, we have no king. We have no king but Caesar. I find no fault in him. And he delivered him to be crucified. The Jews were willing to profess allegiance to Caesar over God in order to rid themselves of Jesus. Just think of that. The intensity of the hatred of Jesus. All because he was upsetting the apple cart of Annas and his corrupt boys. They were willing to put it all on the line and deny, Jesus, deny God and, and give allegiance to Caesar. That was just unheard of before then. And Pilate, essentially Pilate said, I will do anything, even execute an innocent man and release a guilty man in order to protect my rear side. Jesus, this whole sequence of events, fully established Jesus' innocence. His only crime was to admit to his true identity And then we read in verse 16, Then he delivered Pilate, delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away, a hill far away. And in verse 17 we read, And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. First Judas, then the priests, Annas, then Caiaphas, 
then the crowd, then Pilate, then Herod Antipas, even Barabbas, all guilty of sin, but Jesus alone bore the consequence of their sin and yours and mine. I think we need to let that penetrate. Jesus was being led away to a cross to bear the sin of those that put him on the cross and yours and mine. I'd like you to bow your heads and just in silence meditate upon that. Father, when we read the account of Jesus in Gethsemane, then before they read corrupt religious leaders, then the corrupt Pilate and Herod Antipas at the Praetorium, of him being led away to Golgotha, place of a skull, there in ignominy, bearing the sins of the people who put him on that cross. And my sin. It's so easy, Father, for it to be abstract. And yet it was a very real historical event revealing the passion of God in seeking the salvation of the lost. God initiating redemption, salvation, and paying the price that in a dramatic way speaks the truth. Jesus loves me. This I know. Not only because the Bible tells me so, but because Jesus demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ bore that cruel cross, all that went with it, the scourging, the mockery, all of it, as a just payment of sin, for the wages of sin is death, a wage that is inalterable, that must be paid. And Jesus is our substitutionary atonement, died in our stead and in our place, that we through faith might have life. Father, may we never, never lose sight of that incredible reality of what Jesus has done for us. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, we read, Knowing 
that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for us. In John 18, 11, we read, Jesus said, Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? And he answers his own rhetorical question, For this purpose I came to this hour. Father, every one of us here need the Savior equally, along with Judas, the corrupt priests, Annas and Caiaphas, the crowd, Pilate, Herod Antipas, and Barabbas. Father, they are our representatives. For we too, apart from Christ, would have been in opposition to him. I thank you, Father, for the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.